0: You're listening to Moments in the Word, brought to you by Lighthouse Gospel Ministries. First John chapter 2, and I know it's Sunday school, so I have a time limit, so I won't uh, banter on too much about other stuff. Pastor text me, he's like, I, I typically speak for about 20 minutes at Sunday school. I said, oh my goodness, 20 minutes. So I'm going to do my best to uh, only speak 20 minutes, and then in the morning service, I have you guys for as long as I want, That's right. because you guys have the food on warmers and it, it won't get cold. So <laughs> you guys are mine in the next hour, okay? But for now, I'm going to try and keep it to 20 minutes. Uh, I, I don't have a specific text. Um, I want to do a short survey of the Book of First John. This morning, a short survey of the book of 1 John, and so the nature of that lesson kind of prohibits a main text, but we're going to start in chapter 2, and then we're going to kind of be all over uh, 1 John. Um, Reading our Bibles is important, wouldn't you say so? But reading the Bible is fruitless if we don't understand what we're reading, right? And when you read the Bible, it's not like any other book, right? So um, there's not a storyline to follow, right? You have to find the context of what's being said. Um, the Bible being understood without context is a dangerous thing because you can twist it and use it for anything you wanted to say. That's why we need to understand the context of what the Bible is saying. A single verse can be a dangerous weapon with a person who doesn't know what it's talking about, right? And so mm-hmm. I, I think I, I've been really burdened. Whenever I teach Sunday school at my church, I do these like surveys of a whole book. So we kind of teach people to learn the context, learn how to look for the context, and learn what the Bible is saying in light of the context. And so um, when you throw context out, what, what happens? Well, numerous false doctrines pop up, right? Cults pop up because they take a verse of the Bible or a passage of the Bible and they run with it and apply to it whatever they want it to say, okay? And we live today in a very copy and paste world, don't we? Right? With social media, just copy a verse out, paste it on social media, no context needed, right? And so people use it as a weapon to say what they want it to say. And, and I understand, in social media, you're limited as to how much you can put on there, so you can't always get the full context of what a verse is saying. I understand that. But While it's okay to take a verse of the Bible and put it on Facebook, right, that's not how we read and understand our Bibles. We're not going to grow in our knowledge of the Word of God by just taking a single verse and throwing it out there. We need to know what that verse is saying. And so um, it's important to understand the context, the meaning of what's being said. Um, Not understanding the context of Scripture tends towards um, using the Bible as a weapon, right? Have you ever had an argument with somebody? You're arguing or debating doctrine? and they start throwing verses out at you. And your first thought is, that verse is not saying what you think it's saying, right? But it sounds remotely what they want to say, and so they they just throw it out there. You're like, but wait a minute, that's not what the Bible's talking about. You're you're misusing that Bible. Let let me tell you something. we, We all know it's wrong to misuse the name of God, don't we, right? If I were to throw the name of Jesus around in conversation, you would say, whoa, whoa, brother, that's that's wrong. That's blasphemy. But if we're doing the same thing with the written word of God, it's blasphemy. Right? This is the revelation of God. We can't use it however we want to. We must read it as he intended for us to understand it. It's his revelation. This problem of not understanding the context of scripture led to has led to many cases of abuse of the scriptures by pastors. Have you ever been in a service and pastor is preaching a topical sermon, and he chooses a verse that kind of sounds remotely like what he wants to talk about, but he completely uses that out of context. He completely shreds the meaning of the text, and he ends up saying something completely unbiblical, right, because he's using the Bible to get his point across instead of drawing his point from the Bible and what it's trying to say. It's very, very dangerous. So we need to understand the Bible in context, the proper meaning. That way when we hear a verse, we can say, oh, that's being misused. That's being misapplied. He's not teaching what the Bible's saying, or, or their argument is that, that, that they're arguing for a false doctrine because they're misusing a verse of Scripture. So we'll look at 1 John for a few minutes this morning, and this, I think this is a good book because this book gets misused a lot. And we're going to look at a couple of verses that get misused a lot to understand what he's talking about. So let's start with the author of the the book of 1 John. Uh, The author is widely attested throughout church history to be the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. If you think about it, the two books are very closely linked, okay? The Gospel of John focuses on the divine nature of Jesus. And we'll see the book of 1 John highly emphasizes the physical human nature of Jesus, So the Gospel of John focuses on his divine nature. John 20, 31 says, But these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that that believing ye might have life through his name. So the very purpose of the Gospel of John was to reveal to us the divine nature of Jesus. Uh, We see the divine nature of Jesus clearly stated in John 1, 1. We see Jesus declared to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 1.29. We see Jesus identified as the Messiah in several places like John 1.41 and 49, as well as John 4.42. Jesus identifies himself as the I Am in John 8.58 and the bread from heaven in John 6.49. He identifies himself as the Son of God in John 9.35-37 and as one with the Father in John 10.30. Even those who spoke with Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of John, attest to his divine nature okay from nicodemus john 3 2 the same came to jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that thou art a teacher come from god for no man can do these miracles thou doest except god be with him the first thing the pharisees when they this is the first time we see the pharisees really interacting with jesus and what's the first thing they say we know you're a teacher come from god we know you're divine the Samaritan woman, John 4, come and see, um, uh, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She recognized it immediately. The soldiers that were sent to arrest him, John 745 46, I love this. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees and said unto them, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, never man spake like this man. Like the book of John just over and over again emphasizes that Jesus was not any other man. He was divine. He was unique. He was special. He was the God-man. That's the emphasis of the gospel of John. But in 1 John, John's going to kind of switch gears. And he's going to emphasize that not only was he divine, but he was physical. He was human. He was a man. And the reason for that is the context. All right? So the context of the Gospel of John is Jesus is divine. And the context of 1 John is Jesus is human. Okay? In the early days of the church, a heresy arose. My wife knows where I'm going because I go down this road a lot. I think it's very important. A heresy arose in the very early days of the church called Gnosticism. Okay? Now you have to keep in mind, Gnosticism is the backdrop of the context of the, of the book of 1 John okay? He's writing in response to this heresy. Paul wrote about it in Colossians as well. So when you read 1 John, keep that in mind. That's the the backdrop. There are a lot of verses in 1 John that can be twisted if we don't remember the context. Paul or John is, is fighting a specific false doctrine. So some of the things he says are not universal, and we'll see that in just a minute, but they're taken out of context. When you divorce them from their context, they sound universal. We'll get to that in just a minute, okay? So let's take a brief look at what Gnosticism was. Gnosticism taught several key errors, which John addresses in his letter. They taught that matter was inherently evil and spirit was inherently good, okay? Jesus could not have become a man because the divine spirit of God could never mix with sinful matter. He could not have had a human body. He only appeared to be human, but he wasn't actually human. Salvation was achieved through receiving hidden knowledge or wisdom and not by faith alone. A person could sin all they wanted to because matter was inherently evil anyways. Their physical bodies were inherently evil anyways, and it didn't affect their righteous spirit, okay? Okay. I may have oversimplified that a bit, but for the sake of time, that'll have to do. So First John can be dangerous if we lose sight of that context. Let me give you a couple of examples, okay? First John 2, you're there right now, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Uh, Amish, Mennonite, and other groups who withdraw from society can use this verse, can't they, to justify. It's a sin to live in a house or a big city or drive a car. That's why we got we got to separate ourselves from the world. we got we got to make our own clothes and build a wooden house and use, use 300-year-old technology. Why? Because the world is evil. That's not what it's saying, right? He's not saying that driving a car or having a job, or buying clothes at Walmart are evil. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the world system, right? He's talking about being drawn away to the world system is evil, not the, the physical things of the world, right? But you can use that verse to say that if you divorce it from its context. If you street preach long enough, you'll run into sinless perfectionists. Anybody ever met a sinless perfectionist? Man, they, they're all over the Super Bowl when we're there. They teach that Christians can achieve sinless perfection and stop sinning entirely. Their proof text is 1 John 3:8 and 9. Go to chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Well, there you have it, right? We're all not saved because we're all have you sinned since you got saved? you're probably not a Christian. You haven't yet achieved perfection, right? If we divorce First John from its context, it can say that, can't it? But when we understand that these Gnostics are teaching that you can go on living in sin because your body was evil and it didn't affect your spirit, well, now we understand something different, don't we? He's not saying a Christian never sins. He's saying a Christian never goes on in sin, a Christian doesn't continue the sinful life. They, they, there's a there's a turn. There's a holiness. There's a fruit from the Christian life. Is what he's saying. He's speaking against the Gnostic heresy that you can go on and live however you want to because you're saved. That's when you divorce it from its context. So that's what you get, isn't it? That's what he's that's what he's arguing against. He's saying that those who are born of God don't make a practice of sinning. They don't go on living in sin. He's saying there's fruit from salvation. He's saying the same thing we see in passages like Romans 6, 1 and 2, right? Shall we continue in sin? The grace may abound, God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? That's what Paul is saying, Paul is saying, He's not saying Christians never sin. He's saying, how can we who are saved go on in sin? How do we go on for the sins for which Christ died? Right? Living and enjoying and relishing in those sins. Well, there's fruit from the Christian life. There's a the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We don't go on in sin. Galatians 5, 19 through 23 says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says the same thing. Remember, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, he goes to that list of sins. Those who you know, commit such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But such and such were some of you, right? Were. Not are. You're not continuing in those things, right? There's a new person. There's a new man. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We never sin, right? Now, positionally, we are, amen? Positionally, I'm a sinless perfectionist, right? I am sinless in the sight of God because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to me. But practically, as a human, I still sin. I still fall. I still need to go for perpetual cleansing, the ecumenical crowd loves to quote 1 John 4 2. Look at that one. 1 John 4 2. Hereby know you the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. We divorce that from its meaning, from its context. What do we get? I had a woman tell me that Roman Catholics are saved. They're, they're, the, they're the true church. Why? Because they confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Well, so do Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Lots of. Cults believe Jesus came in the flesh. See, John wasn't making a universal statement that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ came in the flesh throughout all of time is of God, right? He was fighting a particular heresy that taught that Jesus was not physical. He was not truly a man, that God could not become a man, and so he was not born in the flesh. He only appeared to be a man. So when you divorce that from its context, you can run wild and say, oh, anybody who says Jesus was born in the flesh, he's of God. We just open the door to a lot of false teaching. A lot of false teaching. We cannot divorce the Bible from its context. We must read it and understand it and use it in the, in the, in the context that God meant it to be understood. It's His revelation, it's not our weapon to prove our point. We draw His meaning from it and we adjust our lives and our beliefs accordingly. So let's take a few minutes and look at the the, the book in light of this context, okay? So we're going to jump around a bit. Go to 1 John 1.1. He emphasizes right from the start the humanity of Jesus. Jesus had a physical body. Remember, these these Gnostics taught that Jesus could not have been human. He could not have had a physical body. So what does John say from the start? That which was from the beginning, okay, what's from the beginning? Well, think about the Gospel of John, right? In the beginning was the Word, the word was with God. The word was God, right? And even in that book, he emphasizes the, the birth of Jesus. John 1.14, John, John 1, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. But here, 1 John 1, one, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. He's emphasizing here. We have handled him. We have touched him. We have looked upon him, right? That which was from the beginning became a physical man. 1 John 4, 2. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Once again, he's speaking not of all people of all time, but of these, this Gnostic heresy. That's what he's addressing. He emphasizes the need for fruit from the Christian life. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith, he abideth in him, ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Now he's not saying that, well, <laughs> hereby do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You know, So there's a, there's a whole group of, of people in this world who live strictly, don't they? They follow rules, and they follow commandments, they follow, they follow the systems of religion. Well, they, surely I'm a Christian, because, I mean, I the mean, Bible says right here, if we keep his commandments, we, we abide in him. No, he's not saying that everyone who lives a moral, religious life is a Christian. He's addressing people who believe you didn't have to live or have any fruit from your salvation. You didn't have to live a righteous, holy life. He's addressing this heresy and saying, Those people who say you don't have, now listen, we have people today in evangelical churches in America who believe that you don't have to live for God. Just pray a prayer and go on your way. You you don't have to live a holy life. You don't have to show fruit from your salvation. I would say that this verse addresses that heresy, and that's a heresy. This idea that you can just, it's the Baptist version of name it, claim it, isn't it? Right? It's the, the sinner's prayer is kind of the Baptist version of name and claim it. Just, just, just say these words just one time and go live however you want to live. Yeah, come on. I've had people, you know, I live this woman of Christ and, and uh, she's not going to come to church and she has no interest in the Lord, but she, she, she prayed the prayer. I think she was sincere when she prayed it. If she has no interest in Christ, she's none of his. She's not, there's no spiritual work in her life. Yeah, right. These heresies continue to infect the church today. First John 1, 9, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He's not saying we don't sin, but if I make a claim to salvation, but my whole life is one of sin and debauchery, you have a right to question my profession of faith. Okay? If I'm up here preaching, and then on the outside, I'm making a practice of visiting the strip clubs, and you find out, you have a right to question my, what I'm saying up here. On, yeah. Right? Because if I, if I claim to follow Christ, then I should follow Christ. Amen. Right, we don't follow Christ just by believing one time. We follow Christ every day of our lives. Yes. And if we're not doing that, we're not bearing fruit of salvation. That we have a right to question whether or not we're truly saved. That's right. yeah. He emphasizes that salvation comes from faith. First John five four and five. For whatsoever is born of God over, overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. He emphasizes that God has revealed all he wants us to know. There's no secret mystical knowledge. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There's no secret wisdom to gain. God has revealed himself fully to us, all he wants us to know. And we can know the things of God by knowing the person of Christ. He gives several tests of true salvation. One of those is a walk of holiness. True salvation will demonstrate itself in outward righteousness. We saw that in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. The other is brotherly love. Christians will love and care for each other. Jesus specifically gave this as a decisively Christian attribute in John 13, 35. John outlines this in 1 John 2, 9 through 11 and 3, 10 through 12. He draws a line that points out that these false teachers were not from God and that is evidenced by their leaving the true faith. Once again, There has to be a pattern of holiness in the life of a Christian. Just because a person preached the true gospel at one time, if they depart from it, we have no reason to believe that they're actually saved. They would continue in that true gospel. A preacher leaves the church, the way of salvation, becomes a Mormon or Roman Catholic. I have no reason to hope in their salvation. None. They've abandoned salvation by faith alone. They've abandoned the gospel. Paul said, "Let them be accursed. Let them be accursed." First John two nineteen. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest. But they are not all of us. Speaking of these Gnostic teachers, that, that these they, by the way, these Gnostic teachers were not from outside the church. These were men who came from inside the church and began to teach false doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. This is speaking of people who professed faith in Christ and were teachers of the true gospel, who are now false teachers gone out into the world. So let me wind this up by emphasizing the importance of understanding the context of what we are reading. The Bible is an interwoven story revealing God to us. No one verse stands alone. Okay? Right, right. Cults rise, heresy festers, and believers are drawn away by a lack of understanding of the Bible. So we take 1 John, and we see that the test of salvation that he gives are because there were false teachers who were rising up among them and teaching false things. I see, I've see, i seen pastors use this. When a member gets mad and leaves the church and goes to another church, a good church, they were not, they were not from us because they were not of us. That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about somebody who left and went to another you know good church. These are, these are false teachers. When he speaks of not sinning, he's not saying we don't sin. We stop sinning because we're Christians. He's saying that the Christian life is marked by growth and fruit. And if we're walking in, in, in lawlessness, if we're walking in, in unfaithfulness to God, then we're probably not Christians in the first place. These are specific heresies that he's addressing. When he says that, he's addressing that, you know, Anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is not of God. He's not saying that everyone who believes Jesus came in the flesh is of God. He's addressing specific heresy. Okay. We need to understand it in context. The Bible, I know this was quick. It was brief. I didn't have a lot of time. I wanted to give you some context. So when you look at the Bible, look for the context. What what was the history of this church? What was Paul battling? What was he talking about? Or what was John talking about? What was the purpose of the letter? Uh, uh, this verse, this is, is it saying what well, I think it's saying? Well, look at the context. Look at the verses around it, right? Look at the whole chapter. Look at the rest of the book. What is he saying? The Bible, in other words, is not a novel to entertain us. It's a field of treasure to be dug into, Amen. to be mined right? Treasures to be found, and we do that by digging into the context of what the Bible is saying. A lot of these verses that we looked at this morning, I know I'm out of time for Sunday school, a lot of these verses that we looked at are used out of context, and they're used in dangerous ways. Right. Very, very dangerous. I mean, we, we, I mean, from, from these verses I gave, I can justify the watchtower, the Mormon church, Roman Catholicism, or sinless perfectionism by misusing the Bible. So the message this morning for all of us is dig into the Bible. Seek to understand it. Don't look at it as something to use, okay? Don't look at it as a weapon to use to win your arguments. Let it use you. Get it down in here. Understand its meaning and then apply it in its proper meaning. That's the only way we'll grow closer to God and bear that fruit, that fruit that, that he talks about. The fruit of righteousness and holiness. People who abuse the Bible, who use it as their own tool and weapon, you know what I've noticed? They never grow in holiness. Mm-hmm. You know why? Because they use the Bible, the Bible doesn't use them. That's important. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for this morning, this Sunday school time. I pray that it was meaningful to somebody, Lord, that, that will look at the Bible a little bit differently, that we will seek to understand the meaning of the Bible, not to use it to our own ends, but that we will realize that by understanding it, we understand you. By getting to know it, we get to know you. This is your revelation to us. May we see it and use it in such a way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for Moments in the Word. Lighthouse Gospel Ministries is an outreach ministry focused in street and prison evangelism, as well as reaching the needy with hope and help. To partner with us financially, go to gospelbeacon.org. All donations are tax-deductible. We hope you were blessed and hope you will join us again for Moments in the Word.